Amen. So uh, there are a number of things that Paul has been uh, discussing uh, with the church in Colossae. Uh, he's uh, addressing them indirectly by letter, and uh, he, back in chapter 2, had told them that there was no other philosophy than uh, Christ for the believer, and then uh, that we shouldn't look to legalism. Instead, that we should look to Christ uh, with our lives. And uh, then he talked about not being of the flesh or the appetites of the flesh and to be new men and women. And now he gets down to very practical uh, advice for each one of us and what it is that we should be doing with our lives. He begins um, this section in verse 18 by saying, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Now, <clears throat> it's uh, important to understand that God doesn't uh, develop any form of sexism in uh, his teachings or throughout the scripture. Um, he previously tells husbands that we should be in submission as husband and wife to one another. So, you know, the advice and guidance of a godly wife, uh, you know, I've often pointed back to Abraham and uh, when in sinfulness, uh, his wife uh, gave him advice to have relations with his handmaid, uh, Hagar, or her handmaid, uh, Hagar, and he uh, listened to that. And then later, once uh, the child is born, to Abraham and Hagar, Ishmael, uh, then the contention grows in the family and uh, his wife tells him that she needs to leave. So the uh, summary uh, for me is knowing as a godly man uh, when uh, to heed and when to lead. So when do you listen uh, to and take the advice of, or when do you say, um, I need to guide you in this case? You know, th that in the end, the husband needs to be the head of the household. There needs to be singularity of guidance. And this only works in a godly household. Uh, I mean, out outside those parameters, uh, you know, it's a free-for-all because everybody's living according to their flesh and their sin, and nobody, husband or wife, is a good leader, consistently anyway, uh, at that point. So, you know, this is talking to the Christian home and, and how to conduct themselves. The husband needs to be uh, the ultimate leadership in, in that setting. And within that, notice that he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands. He doesn't say men are superior and women are inferior and women should always be under and subject to men. The scripture doesn't teach that at all. Uh, all throughout the word of God, we see women in positions of leadership, even leading in a governmental sense the nation of Israel. You have the example of Deborah, who uh, was so powerful in her guidance and direction for the nation of Israel. Uh, God gives Great examples, uh, you know, Proverbs 31, uh, the wife that is described uh, there, she has her own business. She has her own field. She makes her own decisions. She purchases her own product, sells her own product, independent of her husband, has her own money. 
You know, the scripture endorses that uh, mentality. When it comes down to the household, if there are two heads in the household, uh, then there's going to be constant friction. There's going to be constant pull. There needs to be the understanding between a husband and wife, the, the loving, uh, mutual submission of understanding that says, okay, when the chips are down, uh, the husband makes the call, and he is the one who guides the family. You know, It should always be in a very loving way that that is uh, being portrayed, and that's how the Scripture is delivering that to us. And, of course, uh, to uh, reinforce that, uh, Colossians 3, verse 19, Husbands, love your wives, and do not be bitter toward them. And this is the most common reaction uh, for husbands. It, it, the sinfulness from husbands, the most common reaction is bitterness. That that when there is friction, if there is difficulty, then uh, you know it seeds his heart. And if he doesn't, uh, you know, capture that thought uh, with a godliness and control it, then uh, bitterness and resentment. Why? Because his natural role, designed by God, uh, if it's threatened, if he's not secure in Christ and capable of handling that, his sinful reaction will be bitterness. So, so husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. Uh, that's, a, that's actually a very beautiful admonition from Paul. I, I remember having a discussion uh, years ago with a fellow pastor, and uh, he said, yeah, see, all it takes for this situation to work is grace. Yeah, he's just talking about marital issues. All it takes in this situation for this to work is forgiveness. What, what wisdom, what beauty to just recognize, oh, well, okay. You know, you take the specific example of a wife perhaps isn't able to submit in a moment. And if the husband is, you know, in that anger and bitterness toward them for that, it's going to generate more problems and more resentment and more resistance, you know, and less submission. If he can just say, okay, well, that's where you're at right now. <laughs> I'll let that go. Just grace and forgiveness. And okay, you know, let's follow where you want to go and let's see how that turns out. You don't even have to say, when it all train wrecks, right? You don't have to say, I told you so. The circumstances tell you that enough. And if you're truly in it together, then you both regret it together. You know, grace, forgiveness, love. Colossians 3, verse 20, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. So as I said, he's giving these practical admonitions to the whole family, and in this case, addressing children. And there is a God-given design that begins to happen. Uh, usually, it actually starts around 10 or 11 years old where a young person starts developing some independent thinking. Okay? Um, it, it's very necessary for that to happen. If that child doesn't ever develop independent thinking, then, then they're never going to be able to live on their own. They, they have to develop this. So it takes skill as a parent to take that situation and lovingly help them realize that 
you for a time have to obey me as you begin to have your own independent opinions and thoughts and frame of mind. You know, if, if you tie these two things together with verse 21, uh, or uh, the two things I'm referring to are verse 20 and 21, fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Okay, if, if as a parent, um, we are just constantly crushing the independent thinking of the child, then it generates frustration. And then the frustration is going to lead to greater disobedience. That it's a, I'm not saying it like I did it perfectly at all. Uh, you know, the, the process is a learning process. If you can watch others who are parenting ahead of you, get close to people and see how they're developing, uh, you know, child development in their family and seeing how uh, allowing children to make independent decisions, allowing them to do things on their own, think for themselves. Uh, in that process, you can guide and steer so that they come to places that really are very beneficial to them. Um, <clears throat> each of my daughters, you know, an area, an area that I worked on this with them, three, raised three daughters, and uh, if they're watching this, they're all going to laugh. Um, <clears throat> driving, you know, when they get behind that wheel, they've got been through their uh, whole method of, um, you know, driving school and learned all of those things. When I would start driving with them, one of the things we would do is. Uh, do really rigorous, and I don't mean like crazy stunt driving, uh, but really rigorous driving. Like take them downtown when it's really busy and make them not just parallel park. I'm talking like parallel park 25 times, you know, like the whole evening uh, of driving around, you know, pulling in and pulling out of parking space after parking space after parking space. You know, the, the day of their driving test, you know, take them out uh, to a parking lot where they have to, like, pull out of a back out of a parking space, drive down two spaces, pull in nose first, back out again, you know, drive down to the other and park in again and do this over and over and over again. And they are just like, you got to be getting what I'm what I'm aware of, what I'm teaching them is they become very accustomed to how big that vehicle is and where it'll fit, and where it won't, and where it will drive, and where it won't. The, the process of training them causes them to be able to handle it. We, we went through, this Abigail was the one that was, uh, and it really does apply, I'll get to the point here in a second, but, uh, you know, Abigail was the one who we, we went through this to where I was, she was in our family suburban going through that type of intensive training, the morning of her driving test, that afternoon when we went to her driving test, we switched over to my wife's car, which was much smaller. And uh, the, the drivers, you know, uh, the guy who tested her, took her out of the parking lot, drove up the street, turned her around, brought her right back in. And I'm thinking, oh, she failed. And a uh, guy gives her a license. And he said what it was, was that, when she when she pulled out and did her first occasion of parking, he recognized 
that she was completely confident at her driving and he didn't need to test any further. You know, there, there, there is a, a way to guide a child. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying that I did it well. I just, I very much understand this principle having raised three daughters of, you know, the children obeying the parents, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. You've got to take that developing independence and guide it towards the Lord so that, you know, when they get to the place where they're handling these circumstances on their own, they, they have an automatic response which is godly. You know, without that, uh, you're going to create uh, very difficult circumstances for yourself. To dwell on verse 21 a little bit, there is a tendency uh, of all of us, I, and I am totally guilty of this, of expecting my children to not fail in the same areas where I failed. Why, why would I think that they wouldn't? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, we all go through this. You know, pray to God that they wouldn't, but when they start to have challenges, when they start to have struggles, to become overbearing isn't going uh, to correct the circumstances. You know, saying what needs to be said, guiding where you can, lending the insight, lending the godliness. Of course, this all goes back to what the Lord is commanding the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy about raising up the child and teaching them the things of godliness at every opportunity. That in your coming in and you're going out on the doorposts of your house and binding it upon your arm, you know, binding it upon your hand, that at every facet of life, the word of God would be instructing them. If you don't, again, if you don't have that in place, then when you get to where you're trying to uh, you know, uh, guide and lead them, then the whole circumstance is going to fail. Whenever, you know, a child is faltering and struggling, you know, our, our tendency often as parents is to become overbearing. View it through the lens uh, of yourself and whether that type of insistence and pressure was helpful to you and you know, seek the Lord on how you might be able to give them instruction and insight without provoking the child to anger. The discouragement that comes from that. Many, 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 the relationship has been destroyed through uh, that type of aggravation. Now, when he says in uh, verse 22, bond servants, uh, it is that very specific idea of the servant who has been permanently attached to a particular master in a household. But uh, it's more generally talking about employment, uh, you know, as far as being someone's servant. There was pay involved in this. Certainly it was a different world and a different culture. The Roman uh, system of slavery was uh, very prominent. And now these Gentile believers in the Church of Colossae uh, many of them are servants to people that own them. And uh, here Paul is giving them the advice as to how to behave. Our closest application today would be employees. So bond servants, obey in all things your masters. You know, employees, and obey in all things 
your employers according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, the idea of uh, when they can see you, you're doing good things and doing proper things, but when they're gone or they can't see you, that you misbehave or don't continue with your good behavior. No, don't do it you know, as though it's only for when they can see you. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of, sincerity of heart, fearing God. The motivation needs to be your relationship with the Lord. That how you're going to uh, serve your employer is going to be with the idea that you're actually there serving God, not the employer. Your motivation comes from your relationship with the Lord. And that'll keep you from doing a lot of things that you shouldn't be doing. And in whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. And there is no partiality. Now, that repayment and being no partiality certainly has the idea of you know eternity and the reward we receive from the Lord but it's also in regard to the here and now uh, you know God is the one who promotes us the scripture says that uh, promotion doesn't come uh, from uh, the east or the west or the south it comes from the Lord uh, you know, if we're going to be advanced in a job, if we're going to have uh, the favor of our employer, it's going to be when the motivation of our heart is to serve the Lord in those circumstances, and the Lord will care for us. You know, I, I think that this current health crisis has taught a lot of people that God is their provider, not their paycheck, not uh, their employer, not, you know, things of this world. So many believers that I've talked to were very, very concerned, very worried in the beginning about, you know, how is this going to come together? And so many different things have happened. You know, they, they shift through, um, well, maybe I'll be able to get this job or maybe I'll be able to change this or maybe I'll be able to orchestrate these circumstances. And in the end, all of those things are unpredictable and God sustains them. They learn to live with less. They watch God provide through other circumstances. And in the end, they come to the conclusion, God is the one in control. The, the realization that 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 can really change uh, your misaligned heart. If you didn't have the mindset that in your employment you were serving Christ, you had the idea that it was an, you know, a particular organization or entity or you know, a certain form of employment that was providing for you, coming to the realization that it's it's God, it's it's the Lord Christ who cares for us and provides for us and ministers to us. That's a you know a thing that provides a great deal of relief, not having to look to a person, knowing that you are uh, being cared for by the Lord. That should also change, as I said, your behavior. The motivation becoming, I'm serving the Lord. Well, if I'm serving the Lord, then I need to be a much more responsible uh, employee and, and uh, perform in a way that's pleasing to the one who is, in fact, my master, my Lord, my king. In chapter 4, 
uh, same idea. Masters, give your bond servants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So this idea of bond servants, you know, they have the mentality within the culture that the masters are over them, that they're beneath the masters, lesser than. You know, there's a real cultural uh, sort of division in this mindset. And here Paul is very much saying, you know, there's a master. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, there's a master over you. There's, there's someone who is Lord of your life. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. I immediately think of the centurion who came to Jesus saying, my servant is very sick and uh, you know, I want you to heal him. And Jesus is saying, well, we'll go to your house. And the, the uh, centurion says, it's not right. You know, you're Jewish. I'm a Gentile. My house is Gentile. It wouldn't be proper for you to come to my house. But I am a man under authority. I know what that means, and I understand the authority you have. You say the word, my servant will be made well. That centurion was making the confession, I know the divine authority that you have. And if you say the word, it will be so. In this picture... Paul is trying to draw these people to the same conclusion. That there's a master over masters. There's a master over bonds. There's a master over everyone. And, and if we don't act like that, then really we have the mentality of Satan. Right? If we're going to be cruel to our employees, unjust to our employees, then realistically we don't have a reverential fear of God. Yeah, this this needs to be, especially in regard to whatever authority you've been given to have servants in this way. You should treat them kind because you have a master over you who is good and gracious and kind to you. If, if you're not fair, if you're not just, if you're not kind to your employees, then now you got to think about, uh, you know, the illustration Jesus gave of the man who worked for a ruler and was uh, you know owed him debt and that was forgiven to him but then he goes out and he finds one who owes him a much smaller debt and he you know abuses him physically and has him put in prison demanding that payment be made to him it's the same picture right here that if you are a master if you're an employer over slaves or employees, but you don't treat them well, have that reverential fear of God that would cause you to treat them well, then why should you expect that God would continue to be merciful and gracious and kind with you? you think about uh, Jesus teaching the disciples to pray when uh, you know our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, the kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, you know, forgive us our trespasses, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then at the end of that, Jesus says, if you do not forgive, then neither will you be forgiven. You have to have this graciousness of heart. You have to have this kindness. If you're a child of God, even as an employer or a master over others, you have to have this graciousness of heart as a child of God. It's got to be part of our character. 
So uh, Christian grace is uh, discussed here in verse 2. Continue uh, earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying for uh, also for us, God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. So, you know, the encouragement to the church at Colossae that they would continue to be earnest and vigilant in their prayer, strong and, uh, you know, direct and uh, very purposeful in their prayer is what Paul is encouraging them uh, to do for the purpose that they would have, you know, doors open to them, opportunities opened up to them. You think about what Revelation is saying about Jesus being the one who uh, could open where no one else could open and who would shut so that no one else uh, could open. It's important to understand that opportunities should not be wasted. Uh, You guys look like you're a little cold out there. I'm just going to change the setting. There we go. Um, Changing the air conditioner settings. So... um, you know, being earnest, being vigilant, being purposeful about the prayer. You think about James saying, the effectual, fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. Uh, we should be very focused on the things that would give us opportunities. You know, open doors of opportunity to minister to people. Um, I, I have spent lots of time pushing uh, at doors and opportunities that never ended up opening up. You know, praying earnestly for those doors of opportunity to open up. I watch them open up for other people. Okay. You know, I don't I don't really care who they open up for, just as long as people are being ministered to. Areas are being reached. Certain individuals have the gospel preached to them. You know, right now I'm praying that the opportunity uh, would be opened up again for us to be in to Hancock County Jail. And we had uh, great fruit there, uh, ministering to people and sharing the gospel. And I run into former inmates all the time. And, uh, you know, they, they have an embarrassed sort of uh, interaction at first, but then loosen up right away. And, you know, they'll talk to me about their life and they'll ask me to pray right on the street corners for them. You know, that to me, that's an effective ministry. You know, that some hardened heathen criminal would in public say, you know, will you pray for me? And they mean right now, knowing that I will pray for them right now. You know, doors are closed. You know, our governor just one more time signed the extension uh, to keep everything shut. You know, it's a a tragic thing to me that uh, we aren't able to be there. Pray, pray with me uh, for that opportunity that we'd be able to get back into those places and uh, to share the gospel. Now, this mystery he speaks of, I just want to clarify that every time I come across, there's not some hidden message in the scripture that only certain people are aware of. Uh, in particular, the mystery of the gospel spoken of, uh, you know, that we are saved, number one, by grace. So that was a mystery uh, to uh, the people of the Jewish religion. They had the mindset that you were saved through the rituals and through the law and through the practice of all of those religious rites. The second portion of the mystery was 
in the same bracket and that they did not understand that the Gentiles were going to be part of those who were being saved. So uh, the mystery is that Christ would embrace the Gentiles and that salvation came through grace. Uh, mystery is not something that's completely unknown. It's something that was not known previously but is now uh, perfectly made clear and understood. Uh, in verse 5, walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time, lest your speech always, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, uh, and that is uh, not only the flavor rendering agent, but also the preserving agent of salt, the sodium that would uh, keep things from decomposing. So the things that we speak of and the way that we speak should be seasoned with grace and also have that salt. Salt does have a sting, right? It's, it doesn't always come easy. Salt in the wound, you know, we often think of that as an insult, and that's not what was meant. You know, the idea of, oh, it's like rubbing salt in the wound. Rubbing salt in the wound will prevent infection until you can further clean and treat the wound. Salt is very beneficial. Uh, that's that's something in the day of you know modern antibiotics and anti antiseptics we've lost touch with. It wasn't even 50 years ago when salt was very commonly used as the only form of antiseptic. You know, household wounds and scrapes and scuffs, salt was what was used, and salt water. You know, until the turn of the century, and it's still done actually in a way. Newborn children are always bathed in salt water. Wash off all of that filth. Wash off all of the blood. Wash off everything that would be dangerous to it and leave on that child the protective barrier of salt. The scripture speaks of it. So we need to be people who have that softness, that love, and that grace seasoned with salt. And in particular, towards those outside the church. How interesting is that? You know, so much of the church is legalistic and condemning that uh, you know they only speak with fire and indignation towards those that are outside. The world is perishing. Jesus was always kind to the sinners. Who was he harsh with? The religious hypocrites. The ones that needed to be firmly corrected by his word. Uh, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know that you may know how you ought to answer each one. If you're doing it carefully and graciously, you will have that understanding. Now, my Greek is terrible. I actually don't know any, but Tychicus, a beloved brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. So he's got these faithful ministers with him that he's going to reference to this church so that they can receive these people and the messages that they bring. I am sending him to you uh, for this very purpose, that he may, may know your circumstances and comfort you. So he's going to find out what's going on with you and bring that message back to me, Paul is saying, but he's going to bring to you news of us and uh, you can receive the uh, comfort as a result. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. And they will make known to you all things which are happening here. 
Uh, Philemon, you may remember, in the book of Philemon, chapter 1, I'll just quote verse 10, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains. So this runaway slave uh, in the book of Philemon is being sent back uh, to Philemon that he would accept him back as a fellow believer. And there's a great study in uh, Philemon regarding the uselessness of Onesimus and how he has become a useful one, uh, which uh, bears light on the definition of his name. So we'll look at that uh, in Philemon. But here, this is, uh, as best we can tell, uh, the one and same Onesimus that's being referenced in the book of Philemon. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Uh, you know, interesting to think about that. You know, someone who's there with Paul in chains as a believer says, you know, greet the church also. Let them let them know that I'm also praying for them. My fellow prisoner greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. Uh, remember the great friction between uh, Barnabas and Paul over Mark. And here we get the insight that Mark and Barnabas are related. And that is why Barnabas was being so gracious with Mark. Paul and Barnabas and Mark had sent out on a you know, missionary adventure. And in the midst of it, Mark quit and just left them. You know, someone that they were depending upon very heavily for everything that they were doing just shows up one day and basically without notice says, I'm going home. And uh, as a result, when they were headed out again, Barnabas wants to take Mark and Paul says, absolutely not. You know, we're not going to do that. We're not going to subject our ministry to the failings of Mark. And uh, Paul and Barnabas divided over that. Uh, Paul went one direction, Barnabas went another and uh, carried out uh, their ministries. Now, years later, you see Mark uh, being uh, recommended to the church at Colossae, and then later we're going to hear Paul say, send Mark to me. It's good that he minister to me. Now, very often uh, people will uh, say, well, look how much Paul has grown. Look at the softness of his heart. Look at how he's so gracious with Mark now. Yeah, I'll buy that 100%. My my greater uh, thought is probably Mark's grown up a lot by now. Probably Mark is a very dependable minister by now. Probably Paul can see Mark's not going to quit on you. He's been tried. He's been tested. He's had other opportunities and has not failed. He failed miserably when he was out with Barnabas and myself. He left us in a very bad place, and I wasn't going to subject our ministry to that again. And now, years later, as I say, he's even commending Mark to the church at Colossae. I, I am not convinced that this is all just Paul was very harsh and difficult and uh, you know didn't like Mark and now he's gotten over himself and grown up and it just uh, you know allows Mark to uh, be part of the ministry. I, I, I agree that probably a lot of that has gone on in Paul's heart, without question. 
But I can also guarantee you that given the gravity of the ministry these guys are involved in, right? Paul, Paul is going to lose his life over this ministry. You don't want a young man who's falling away continuously engaged in a ministry that could cost him his life. He needs to be solid, and my suspicion is that he's become very solid to the point that now Paul is recommending him. And Jesus, who is called uh, Justice, it is perhaps thought that um, Jesus was a very common name that we know. Uh, the name being uh, Yeshua's salvation, uh, or excuse me, uh, Yahweh's salvation, Yeshua, Jesus. It was a very common name in Israel at this time. Um, uh, much like we see uh, with uh, the name Judas, they, they made sure that people knew which Judas they were talking about. Uh, Judas Iscariot, you know, or, or you know, another Judas. They, they would clarify uh, which Judas they were talking about. Here, uh, they're making sure we know which Jesus we're talking about. It was a common name. Jesus who is called Justice. These are my fellow workers for the kingdom of God and who are of the circumcision. They have uh, proved to be a comfort to me. So while they're Jews and part of uh, you know, the circumcision, they are also uh, very much uh, you know, of the same mentality regarding uh, grace and all of Paul's doctrine. He's, he's clarifying for uh, the Jews uh, and the Gentiles that are going to receive these people into the church at Colossae that while these men are Jewish and while they are of the circumcision, they're of the same doctrine and belief as me. So you, you shouldn't be worried about accepting them into your midst even though they are of the circumcision. So the, again, he's lending credentials to them. Epaphras, who is one of you, so they know who Epaphras is, a bond servant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. That's always a nice thing when you become aware of someone who's praying for you. You know, when when someone uh, lets you know that uh, you're on their prayer list and they pray for you continuously. That's a, a huge blessing. For I bear him witness that he has great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea. He very much is uh, you know, mindful of those in Heropolis. So Colossae, Laodicea, Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and uh, Demas greet you. Again, all names that they would have known. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church that is in his house. Uh, again, I need to clarify that the church did meet uh, as a, a corporate body. Uh, what's happening at this point is the persecution is growing so severe that now the church is going underground. And so house churches have begun to be uh, developed. I just want to caution us against uh, those small groups that want to act like it's improper to have corporate church, corporate church meetings, uh, you know, uh, the collective body of Christ in the way that we do. House churches were very common, uh, but they met at the temple as an entire body continuously. 
being taught by the apostles, and they had large corporate gatherings of the church. It was once the persecution began and the church had to start being stealthful and secret and and hiding uh, their worship that the house churches became more and more prominent. Verse 16, Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is also read in the churches of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Boy, it'll be nice when we get our hands on that. And say to uh, uh, that guy, Archie, <clears throat> take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. You know, pay attention to the work the Lord has given you to do. What is your uh, ministry? Those of you sitting here this, this evening in this Bible study or listening uh, you know, online at a later date, make sure that you fulfill the ministries that the Lord has given you. Don't neglect them. Uh, this salutation by my own hand, uh, Paul, you know, he actually put his signature there. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. So Paul closes the letter in his own hand there, the Church of Colossae. Very, very encouraging uh, letter, you know, starting with the mindset that, uh, you know, Paul is saying, you know, didn't really know you guys, haven't really met you, but we've heard of your faith. What a wonderful thing uh, to have a church that uh, is the result of another church's ministry. That, that Paul ministers to a group of people and their faith inspires other, and now a new church body is born uh, out of that. And when Paul addresses them, it's mostly just encouragement. There's, there's not much correction uh, that we see, some guidance that goes on, but he doesn't have to send you know, firm, harsh rebukes to the church at Colossae. It's a a wonderful letter with a lot to learn there. So we'll continue on next week for this evening. That's our study. So why don't we stand and we'll pray. Father, I thank you for this evening, for our time together, and I just ask that you would continue to bless us in the days to come as We live in such a chaotic world. Help us to season our conversations with the unbelieving world, even with one another, with grace and the salt of your word, that it would have a fruitfulness to you, that we would know what to say. Help us to love one another and care for one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.